We are continuing to work our way through First uh, Thessalonians. We are starting chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. So First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 1 through verse 11. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they, that is the unbelievers and unprepared, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Let's pray. Father, we do recognize that one day you will return. You will come as you left in the clouds. I do pray that you would speak to us today about this this coming and our own relationship to it. Teach us, Father, the mindset, the attitudes way of thinking and viewing this event. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Paul begins verse 1 with, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. The word times is like the word seasons. For example, there are four seasons. And one season follows the other so that as fall is coming to an end, you know that winter is near. So it is with this word times in relation to the return of Christ. In other words, when certain prophesied events happen, remember Jesus spoke of the tree, the olive tree, when it's budding, you know that the olives are near. And in the same way, when certain prophesied events happen, you know that Christ's return is coming soon. That's Paul's use of the word times. Paul provides a glimpse of the times prior to the return of Christ, and we can read about this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. And uh, consider what he is saying here in light of our world today. But realize this, that in the last days... Difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Did you ever think that word would take uh, reality on the internet? Malicious gossips. Without self-control. Brutal. Haters of good. Treacherous. Reckless. Conceited. Lover of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness. By the way, he was writing this to believers. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men and women as these. Well, that's times. And what Paul wrote to Timothy was, when you see these things happening, the return of Christ is approaching. The word epics, or epic, speaks of a significant event that will happen at a specific point in time. For example, in speaking of signs of his own return, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16, to the disciples, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Why? Because the return of Christ is coming. And that would be considered an epic. Interestingly, just prior to ascending into heaven, Jesus' disciples asked him if he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel at that time. Jesus responded by saying, It is not for you to know times or epics. How about that? It's not for you to know times or epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth, Acts 1, 4 through 8. Now, just so we keep things in context and perspective, Given the number of epics mentioned in the scriptures concerning Christ's return, it is doubtful that Jesus is saying that his disciples can't know these things. Rather, the probable meaning is that we, Christians, those disciples at that day, believers ever since, we ought not to focus our attention on the epics preceding Christ's return but instead focus on being alert and prepared ourselves while evangelizing unbelievers so they aren't left behind. Since World War I, this is my understanding of church history, since World War I, uh, which was the, the Great War and uh, supposedly was the war to end all wars, although it didn't, we had World War II, um, but since World War I, there has been prophecy conferences started in England, and uh, they've spread uh, around the world. We have them in our own country. And uh, you can attend these prophecy conferences, and I'm not speaking against the conference itself. My point that I want to make today is that it is not uncommon for new believers, 
or I'm going to use this word carefully, but nonetheless, in my opinion, it's the truth. Immature believers who focus on the end times. I mean, they are students of the end times, but they are not students of how they treat their spouse. They are not students of how responsible they are at work. They are not students of how they handle their finances. So it is very easy to get focused on end times. It's an intriguing topic. And if you talk to a good end time focused person, they can tell you signs and wonders that are going to happen. And whether it's they've happened already or they're, they look like they're about to happen, they just have all this information down pat. And on one level, that's fine. I'm not speaking against that entirely. But I am saying we can get focused on that and miss what God has for us to do, which is to live a godly life and call the people around us to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Paul concludes verse 1 with the words, You have no need. You have no need of anything to be written to you. Well, you know, these were new believers, but remember Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had spent some amount of time in Thessalonica uh, teaching the new believers, and it would appear that Paul had already taught them that it wasn't for them to know the time of Christ's return. This was not something that was a fixed time that we could all know about. It's going to happen on February 3rd. No, we don't know. Nobody knows. And it would appear that Paul had already told them and I want to just emphasize this again, and we'll emphasize this more than twice or three times today. Our responsibility as believers is to be ready for his return so that when he does return, we are found, we are found, we are found living as Christians ought to be living. And Paul affirms this truth in verses 2 through 8. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5. So continued on to verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Alright, so I want to point out a shift in Paul's choice of words in reference to the return of Christ. And it takes place right here at verse 2. From the beginning of 1 Thessalonians until this point in verse 2 of chapter 5, Paul has used the Greek word parousia, which actually means arrival or presence. And it's commonly uh, translated and spoken of as the return of Christ. Here, however, he uses a phrase, and the phrase is the day of the Lord. This phrase is found 18 times in the Old Testament and five times in the New Testament, and consistently it is used to describe a future epic, a future event, when God will come to do two things. And this is important for you to understand in order to follow what Paul is saying here in chapter 5. And the two things are, are, first of all, gather his people to himself. The day of the Lord is a day when God will gather his people to himself. And secondly, it's to punish the wicked. Those are the two things that make up the day of the Lord. So it isn't just Christ's return. It's Christ's return to gather God's people to himself and to punish the wicked. Paul's focus 
back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which is what we looked at last Sunday, is on Christ returning and gathering all believers. In other words, Paul, in that section of 1 Thessalonians, was presenting this truth to the believers that even those who died before Christ's return, they would be included when Christ comes back. They would be raised from the dead, and they would be raised up to meet Christ along with those who are alive. But here, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul takes the traditional twofold focus of Christ's return, and that is, first, Christ is returning to gather God's people, and second, he is returning to judge the wicked or the unbelievers. Paul goes on to say that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, there are two important points here that I suspect you already know, but I want to emphasize them. First, though we can read the signs preceding Christ's return, signs that are given to us in the Bible through prophecy, though we can read those signs, no one but God knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. Second, because there is no doubt about Christ returning, and because no one knows exactly when, we are to be vigilant and prepared so it does not catch us living contrary to how a Christian ought to live. The reason the thief comes at night is because the homeowner is asleep. And the homeowner is asleep because he feels safe enough to go to sleep. If he thought the thief was coming, he would stay awake, probably have a gun ready, and when that thief started to break in, he would take appropriate action. But, because he's asleep, he doesn't know that the thief is breaking in. We know the return of Christ is coming. We can either be asleep and think all is well, nothing's going to happen, we have nothing to worry about, or we can be alert and prepared. Jesus speaks of the need to be alert and prepared for his return in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 44. And I'm going to read these words. Therefore, Jesus says, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, you being believers. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Now, why do we have to be ready? We're saved. We're on our way to heaven. All is well between us and God? Is it? You see, he's not just coming to gather God's people. He's coming to judge as well. That's why we want to be ready. This idea was uh, bought into very strongly by the early church. They used this word. You, you would not hear it in theology today. You may stone me after the service for saying this out loud. Yet nonetheless... They use these words in, in talking to each other, and it's in their literature, not just on one rare occasion, but repeatedly, that you needed to be worthy when you got to the end of your life. 
You needed to be living a worthy life when you got to the end of your life or when Christ returns. Why would they say that? I believe they got it from Jesus himself. For this reason, you also, he says in verse 44 of Matthew 24, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Jesus went on to speak of the judgment that will accompany his return. Remember, he's coming to gather his people and also to judge. Same section, chapter 24 of Matthew, just reading on from verse 45 to 51. So it's really a complete statement. I'm just breaking it into two so you can see both sides of it. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Who might that be? Well, he asks the question, and I think he leaves it up to us to figure it out. We're, we're bright enough. We have enough ability to read and think. So he goes on to say, Blessed is that slave whom the, whose master finds so doing when he comes. He put the slave in charge, and he says, The blessed slave is the one who is doing what the master told him to do. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. The master will reward him. But if that, and notice Christ's words here, if that evil slave, you know, maybe had a bad day, maybe a bad week, maybe a bad life, but he wasn't intent on being alert and prepared. He wasn't intent on being ready. So what if that evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards or behave in a manner contrary to how he ought to behave. Let me just stop for a minute. You know, we may never have the thought in our mind, well, Christ isn't returning tomorrow so I can do what I want. You know, if I do this today, God will forgive me and everything will be fine. He's not coming till tomorrow or the next day. So you may have never said that. You know, I, I doubt that you have. But I suspect you've at least lived, if you've never thought this out honestly, you've at least lived as if because God is not here looking at you, you can do this and it'll be okay because nobody knows. That's not being alert and prepared. Verse 50. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Peter talks about how we Christians are to live in expectation of Christ's return. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10-14. through 14, and, and you hear some of the very same language that Christ used, that Paul used. Here's Peter using some of the same language. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Notice he uses the day of the Lord, not the return of Christ. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. Well, here again, Peter asks the question, and I think he assumes we're wise enough to figure out the answer. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, 
looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent, alert and prepared, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. How ought we to be living when Christ returns? In peace, spotless and blameless. You see, what is important for us as Christians is not when will Christ return, as if we could figure that out, but will I be ready for his return? That is, will I be found living a life pleasing to God and in accordance with his will? Verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5, While they, that is, unbelievers and the religious, who are unprepared because they love the world and the things of the world, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The claim of there being peace and safety just prior to a cataclysmic event may be a reference to the Old Testament teaching uh, about the Israel's about Israel's false prophets. Israel's false prophets and their ungodly leaders were selling the idea to the Israelites that everything was okay between them and God, and God was going to protect them from any bad things happening when, in fact, things weren't going well at all and God's judgment was just around the corner. But the false prophets and the leaders, the political leaders, were saying peace and safety. You see, God's judgment was very close at that point, and His judgment would include Israel being invaded. That's hardly peace and safety. Defeated. Carried off to Babylon. Made slaves. So the pseudo-religious and the political promises of ongoing peace and safety, they just weren't true. And think about in our own day, the, the religious jargon that is passed around about how God is going to protect us or take care of us. Yes, he will. But is it really peace and safety or is judgment on the way? Should we be getting ready for that? Should we be ready for that? All right, that's one perspective of the words peace and safety. There is another way to look at the words peace and safety. It might also be a reference to the political atmosphere of Paul's day. Remember, Rome was in power. Their rule covered much of the known world. And for whatever reason, be it noble intentions or just good propaganda, the Roman slogan was Pax Romana, Roman peace. And the idea was that wherever the rule of Rome went, there was peace and safety for those under its rule. Now, it wasn't quite honest, but it was a good slogan. And, you know, people really liked that. Uh, The sad reality is, is that 
We are in a similar situation today, I believe. The signs of the return of Christ seem to be getting stronger. God's judgment on our nation and the wicked within it seems more and more appropriate and even necessary. And yet, many believers, and most, if not all, unbelievers, are living as if the good life will never end. Jesus warned us about this foolish mindset in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 to 30. And just as it happened, Jesus says, in the days of Noah, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage. They had no idea. They were unwilling to accept the reality that God's judgment was coming on the earth. They were just going on with life as it was, thinking it was going to be like that forever. And then Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building, as if life would continue on like this forever. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Paul continues verse 3 with a similar warning. And then, he says, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Just as a woman with child cannot escape labor pains at the time of delivery, so those who are not alert and not prepared for Christ's return, they will not escape the resulting judgment. And the exhortation is, don't be foolish. We see in this warning, I see in this warning, God's love and grace. He's warning us ahead of time, before it ever gets here, before it ever happens, he's saying, look, be on guard about this. Get wise now. Be prepared. But we also see in this the foolishness of humanity. How many of the people around us, maybe some of our own folks, how many disregard or pay no attention to or think nothing of God's warnings? And they go on living as if Life like this is just going to go on and on and on. To be unprepared for the coming judgment is just as foolish, Paul is saying, as being unprepared for labor pains if you're with child. Paul ends verse 3 with the words, and they will not escape. That is, they won't escape God's judgment and the resulting punishment. It's coming. There's no way out. There's no way around it. It will happen. There's no escape. Verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. The gentleman that divided the New Testament into verses somehow 
didn't realize this was the end of the thought. We're stopping in the middle of verse 5. The rest of verse 5 is in the next section. But I do want to talk about verse 4 and the first part of uh, about verse 5. You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. We've heard the preacher preach. We've read the scriptures. We've had books about the return of Christ. There have been conferences. We know it's coming. And then Paul says, the reason you're not in darkness is because you are sons of light and sons of day. Well, what are some examples of being in darkness, living as if there is no judgment, living as if you can sin and get away with it, living as if God's grace will cover your sinfulness regardless, that it doesn't matter because Christ died for it. Not repenting, that's in darkness. But he says, we are Christians who are not in darkness. To not be in darkness is to live according to the truth. Not living according to the deceptions and lies of the devil. I can't imagine that all of you think the way I think, so I understand that. But maybe some of you have thought as I have thought. You know, I've already sinned today. I've already done this once today. Doing it again is going to make no big difference. I might as well just do it again. It wasn't until I took seriously the words, now is the day of salvation, and said, you know what? (laughs) Even if I did it once today, that's got to be it, because right now is the time of salvation, not tomorrow, not the next day, not after I do it a second time. You see, we are not in darkness because we're not living according to the deceptions and lies of the devil. We are not being led astray by the influence of the world. Probably one of the most powerful influences of the world have to do with money and fashion. Just look around you. How the world uses its money and how it follows fashion. The clothes we wear that are so inconvenient, it's just amazing to me. Just amazing. But we are not being led astray by the influence of the devil. Not if we're walking by the Spirit. We aren't being ensnared by the deceitfulness of riches. Not if we know what the truth is. We are not self-ruled and self-centered. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not ruled by fear or by our our passions. You see, when we are ruled by fear or passions, we are in darkness and don't really realize it. We're not puffed up with spiritual knowledge, yet living an ungodly life. I've met too many, and it hasn't been hundreds by any means. I'm a small fish in a small pond, and I've only known so many people. But I have met way too many people who are proud of their spirituality and living pretty ungodly lives. It's a real sad thing. And we are not knowingly and willfully practicing any sin or acting as if continuing to practice some particular sin is 
is of no eternal consequence because we're saved by grace. My point is, is that we are sons of light and sons of day if indeed we are not living in a way that blinds us or numbs us to the truth regarding what is required to live a God-pleasing, God-honoring Christian life. Hebrews 12. Put off the sin that so easily besets you. Lay aside every encumbrance. Once you start doing that, you are in the light. And if you're in the light, this is my belief, you will naturally be on the alert and be preparing for his return. You see, the return of Christ will be sudden. It will happen at a time that no one knows but God himself. And the difference between the Christian living in the light and the unbeliever or the foolish Christian, remember the ten virgins? They were all virgins. Five were smart, five were foolish. So the difference between the Christian living in the light and the unbeliever or foolish Christian is that the Christian will not be asleep. He will be on the alert. He will be prepared for Christ's return. And because the Christian is on guard and prepared, he will not suffer loss. There will be no loss. Nothing lost. He won't be saved, though as by fire, he will be saved. So I'm going to end with a couple questions. Are you living as a son of light and a son of day? In other words, are you alert and purposefully, intentionally and persistently preparing for the return of Christ? Is it even on your mind? Do you even get up in the morning and think about, you know, Christ is going to return one day and... I would like him to find me living as he wants me to live. Is that even a thought? At his return, will he find you living the kind of life he saved you to live? That he commands you to live? Or are you asleep? Believing that because you are saved by grace, God's grace will make up the difference between how you are living and how you know you ought to live. Alert, prepared for the return of Christ. And that's what Paul is trying to convey to us in this portion of scripture today.